Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Better Goods podcast. I have a very special guest here, Jason Crawford, who runs the popular blog and now nonprofit, The Roots of Progress. Hi, Jason. Uh, happy to have you on. Yes, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, my first question to you is for listeners who don't know, what what is Progress Studies and why is it important? Yeah. The basic idea behind progress studies is that uh, progress is really important. And by this, we're mostly talking about um, scientific, technological, industrial, and economic progress, material progress. Um, that kind of material progress is one of the most important things that's ever happened in, in history and one of the greatest things that's ever happened to humanity. And so we really ought to understand the causes behind it in order to keep it going and maybe even speed it up. Uh, if we understand where progress comes from, then we can make more of it is, is the basic idea. In the last few years, a intellectual community has formed around this idea. So progress studies sometimes refers to that, um, that community of um, uh, you know, writers, um, thinkers, speakers, and, um, you know, and, and uh, entrepreneurs and uh, various types of people who are uh, interested in this basic concept and in kind of pushing these ideas forward. This be uh, would it be similar, different, related to not to the academic fields of economic and technological history? Yeah, of course, it's closely related. Um, progress studies is really sort of interdisciplinary in that it uh, it cuts across many academic fields which are traditionally uh, distinct and, and somewhat separate. Um, economics, history, um, economic history, the history and philosophy of science, uh, perhaps industrial psychology, um, uh, and even philosophy. Uh, recently, for instance, I've been working on a um, the the topic of can progress continue? And the uh, the the various topics in there, I have found, you know, making the full case for can progress continue, fully addressing that question, requires really integrating. Um, uh, some economic history, some macroeconomic theory, um, the uh, philosophic questions about sort of the nature of human beings, the nature of intelligence, um, uh, philosophic questions in within environmentalism, such as resource usage um, and sustainability, um, and a number of other you know connected uh, techniques. So when you cut when you're cutting across history, philosophy, and economics like this, and and often other fields as well. Um, you, you really get something that uh, you get a perspective that is a synthesis and integration of, you know, those various disciplines. On that topic, I remember you asking the question on Twitter me, uh, a year ago is, was a human progress an accident or, you know, were there specific factors? What is your answer to that now? Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely not an accident. I think that progress is, first off, progress is something that has been going on for a very long time. Um, really, ever since we started uh, with stone tools millions of years ago and began refining those tools into better ones, and then, you know, eventually discovered uh, agriculture uh, and then better means of agriculture and, you know, um, uh, all the way up to, and of course, through the, the Industrial Revolution and the Industrial Era. There has been progress for, um, you know, for pretty much all of human history. Now, in the early years and in the early millennia of human history, it was extremely slow progress compared to what we have today, almost zero. So you can sometimes think about progress as a relatively modern phenomenon, because almost everything that we have 
uh, today, you know, was really created in the last few hundred years. Um, but fundamentally, uh, progress comes from our fundamental nature as intelligent beings and as problem solvers. And it accelerates, you know, the, the better that we get, um, the better we get at making progress, the faster we can make it. And that is a matter of um, everything from, of course, the progress of science and technology um, to all the way down to sort of philosophic ideas about whether progress is possible and desirable and epistemological ideas about how we go about gaining new knowledge and, uh, and testing ideas. Um, all of those things, you know, matter to progress, uh, but, but fundamentally it comes from our nature as, as problem solvers. We think about the idea that progress is fundamental to human nature. I would argue that was true for the majority of human history, but we've hit some sort of plateau in it in the in the seventies, right? And Tarek Cohen calls it the great uh, st stagnation. Have we run out of ideas? Have we hit poor the, uh, regulatory incentives, or is it the gold standard? What's the exact? Um, uh, mechanism for, for 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 understanding why my grandparents saw you know no running water to being able to uh, zoom me versus me see you know versus my parents seeing not very much from running water to zoom uh, so yeah sure it does seem as if progress has slowed down a little bit uh, in the last fifty years or so. Um, we haven't seen, you know, we've seen far from zero progress. In fact, I would say the last 50 years, progress has still been faster than at any time, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, however, uh, it does seem to be a bit slower than it was at the absolute peak of kind of like, you know, maybe late 19th to early to mid 20th century, depending on exactly what you count um, and whether you're looking at more scientific, economic or, or um, you know, kind of uh, progress in, um, in industry and infrastructure distribution. Um, yeah, well, so why is that? I have a few hypotheses um, and they are non mutually exclusive. I think it's some combination of the following. Um, uh, one, the sort of, and these are in no particular order, um, uh, one kind of creeping bureaucracy and, um, and regulation, uh, much of it coming from government regulation, but I think not entirely, um, just sort of layers and layers of rules and process that um, kind of slow things down uh, and make it difficult and expensive to get things done. Two, the centralization and bureaucratization of, uh, of research in general and of science in particular, uh, that's really a post-World War II phenomenon. Uh, and then three, a sort of fundamental attitude shift in the culture um, towards being, you know, fr from a, a kind of mode in the, in the, I would say, late 19th and very early 20th century, where the culture was very positive on progress and excited about it and, and sort of optimistic, to today a mode where there is a lot of uh, fear and skepticism and distrust of the very idea of progress whether it's a real thing, uh, whether material progress leads to uh, true progress or human progress, you know, whether all of this science and technology and industry actually makes us better off. There's a lot of skepticism about that um, these days. I've always found that to be a more of a developed world phenomenon than a developing one. Because if you look at uh, people in China, people in India, Indonesia, Malaysia, they're not very skeptical of this, right? For them, progress has, 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 has meant that they get better phones, you get to buy a better car, the, the, the roads get better. What explains this specifically in the developed world? 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, what I'm talking about is sort of a, um, a, a more of a Western phenomenon. And uh, for what it's worth, I'll note that this phenomenon of stagnation is also something that is mostly affecting the developed world, right? Um, China, India, I would say, have not stagnated in the last 50 years. They've actually made amazing progress. They stagnated before that uh, in relative terms. So um, yeah, what, what is causing this in the Western world? Um, you know, it's a cultural sort of social philosophical uh, phenomenon, right? It's about kind of basic attitudes towards humans and our relationship to the world. And those things, you know, they tend to flow within um, within languages and cultural blocks, right? So I think it's not surprising that these ideas kind of maybe arose in the West. I also think that, um, uh, you know, a significant factor, historical factor that um, led to this kind of distrust of progress really was the world wars. Um, the world wars really kind of shattered the illusions of a lot of people um, in terms of our ability to, uh, you know, to, to create a better world. Um, and especially for the, it really shattered the illusions of a lot of people in terms of um, technology and science making us all better off. Um, uh, or at least it led people to kind of deeply question those ideas. Um, and obviously, um, you know, Asia was involved in, in the world wars, but they, you know, they were really centered on kind of America and the West. Um, so I think that, um, I think that's part of it. And then I think that the, uh, but it, it wasn't just the world wars. It was the ideas that arose in the following generation to explain what went wrong and, you know, kind of where we need to go. And so I suspect that those ideas just arose in the West and spread in the West and then, um, you know, kind of at the same time, um, you know, places like India and China decided to um, actually try out uh, some of this, um, uh, you know, some uh, loosening of controls and kind of a little bit more economic freedom and, and um, you know, embracing more the uh, uh, industrial development. And, um, you know, that has worked out for them really well. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think because of that experience, they're probably, you know, a lot more positive on the idea of, of making progress than the West. So the idea of World War II as a as a turning point, I'd be very surprised because if you if you if you look at uh, economic histories of the of the of the wall, you know, American and to a lesser extent British technology made a made a great difference on nuclear weapons, radar, just making better ships. The best American ships were around an order of magnitude more stable than the best Japanese ones. So, it's a, so you know, I find that quite um, surprising. But I understand it because once, I, I guess once the, the, the elite class saw the uh, risk of nuclear weapons, they, they, they probably were shook a little. On that, on that topic, you know, a common uh, criticism of this, at least from my smartest friends, is that we should be working more on existential risks instead of uh, increasing progress or, 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 or economic growth, broadly defined, because that is going to be a more severe problem for, for humanity than uh, economic progress being too slow. I have various critiques of this, but I, I, I'm interested in seeing what yours are. Um. Existential risks are a good thing to work on. Um, I think non-existential risks are also a good thing to work on. They're just not the only thing to work on. And I don't see them as sort of fundamentally opposed to bro progress, broadly speaking. That's kind of my, that's my two cents or, you know, my nutshell response to that. We can elaborate more or, or to go deeper if you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, what is the more elaborate response? I think that... 
um, in general, okay, so again, it's important to, uh, it's important to identify and address um, real risks. And there are a lot of real risks. Um, let's take maybe one of the ones that's easier to deal with, which is bio risk. Uh, I think there's a good case to be made that we are not taking uh, sort of biosafety um, seriously enough, that it is not well implemented, and that there's a serious risk of, you know, some pathogen escaping a lab and, and, and causing a serious pandemic. Um, I think that, um, and, and there are a lot of ideas for sort of how to work on that better. Um, uh, you know, all kinds of things um, from... Uh, you know, wastewater monitoring to uh, better uh, protective equipment to uh, better vaccine platforms to broad spectrum antivirals to, I mean, there's all kinds of things that would help. Many of those things, by the way, um, again, they're, they're attacking sort of bio-risk in general, whether or not it is existential. That is whether or not it would, um, it would actually like have a serious risk of human extinction. Like, I don't think we have to, I don't think, I don't think extinction risk is like the only risk, risk that's worth, um, you know, worrying about. Um, so, uh, you know, all of those things are good. Um, and uh, I think that it is definitely incumbent on those who are involved in bio-research. First and foremost, the researchers themselves, uh, those who create the laboratories, uh, the funders uh, who, you know, sort of set up a part of the incentive mechanism. I think it's on all of those, uh, you know, people to sort of think about um, what system are we creating? What kinds of risks are we, you know, potentially creating and, uh, or, or, you know, not paying enough attention to? How can we do better? Um, I, I think there's a mistake, though, to just sort of think of risk as kind of fundamentally opposed to progress. So something that I've heard from uh, some effective altruists is, well, uh, if we were to speed up uh, progress, you know, economic progress from, uh, you know, 2% GDP growth to 3% GDP growth, wouldn't that bring such and such, uh, you know, various types of existential risks uh, sooner and maybe gives us less time to deal with them? And, uh, and you know, isn't that a bad thing? And I just... I think this is mistaken on in, in, in kind of a number of ways. Like, so in the first way, the first thing is like, the devil's in the details on all of these discussions. So first, there is no knob that we are going to go turn that says that's labeled economic growth that is currently set to 2% and we would just like turn it to 3%. That doesn't exist, right? So if you're going to talk about some way in which we would accelerate progress broadly, I think you should talk about specifically what way you're talking about, right? Um, are you talking about, uh, you know, reform in science funding at places like NIH and NSF? Are you talking about um, regulatory reform, maybe at, uh, you know, in terms of our, um, you know, nuclear regulation, uh, or maybe in terms of environmental review, uh, you know, which is the thing that sort of holds back a lot of development. Um, are you talking about changing cultural attitudes, uh, you know, towards progress by, um, I don't know, um, uh, and even that is a broad thing, right? Are you talking about something specific, like, I'm going to ma go make a, um, uh, a series of biopics about great scientists and inventors in order to inspire people, right? So like all of those different things are very different. And I think that they would, they're, they're all ways that you might try to accelerate progress, but I think they would all have kind of different 
um, you know, impacts on, uh, on, on any particular um, existential risk or, or other type of risk that you were thinking about. And they wouldn't have the same, you know, impacts on, on each individual type of risk, right? Um, uh, I would guess that if you go reform the NIH, that is not going to have much to do with AI risk, right? So um, uh, I also think that, I mean, a lot of the, um, a lot of the risk that's going to, you know, happen in particular fields is it's specific to those fields. Um, uh, uh, so just as economic progress is not like a single, you know, monolithic thing that is that is set to some where there's a dial you set to some value, you know, risk is also not a single monolithic thing that has some value. There are all sorts of different types of risk um, and different threat models that you could be worried about, and. Um, you know, and, and I, I just think you have to think about each one um, independently. So I think that when people kind of worry at a very high level about progress versus risk, I think they're just thinking about it at too high a level, at a level where you actually just can't um, say meaningful things uh, uh, about those uh, things at a broad abstract level in this particular case. I think you really just have to get down to um, uh, a, a more case by case, like, okay, what type of progress are you talking about? What type of risk are you worried about? Um, and uh, there, you know, there would certainly be certain types of um, uh, there, there are certain types of things that you might go do that where you could say, um, yeah, let's uh, okay, let me just take an example, right? Um, maybe you come up with a machine that lets anybody print any DNA sequence or synthesize any protein in their home for a thousand bucks, you know, and you make this totally available um, to everyone. Like, sure, you might you might be thinking purely about. Um, the progress kind of benefits of that. Great, we'll get an explosion of experimentation in bio. Um, but that is the, you know, that is the sort of thing where, um, whoa, like if you just, if you had absolutely no controls or restrictions on that, maybe you've just let any terrorist print any kind of pathogen, right? Um, so, uh, you know, that's the thing where if you, if you get down to a very specific type of progress accelerant and a very specific type of risk, yeah, you might say, oh, this particular thing is not worth it. Just like, you know, for that matter, <clears throat> it's not worth, um, uh, you know, we we used to release uh, drugs onto the market without necessarily doing a lot of, uh, you know, drug testing or, or doing clinical trials. Um, you know, these days we don't do that. That's a good thing, even though, yes, in a sense, it slows down drug development, right? It makes drug development more costly and, and, and more slow. Um, that is a price we pay. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense to pay that price because there's a sort of specific known risk, which is that um, which is that you know drugs can have adverse effects. That's a very abstract risk, but it is you know in a sense it's a, it's like a known thing. Um, there is a specific mechanism for combating that, which is a drug testing pipeline that goes through multiple known stages from you know early sort of whatever toxicity studies through animal tests through clinical trials and multiple stages of clinical trials. Um, and that series of tests has like a bounded um, cost and gets us a certain type of knowledge that we know is useful. Um, it, it will catch certain types of uh, harms that we would otherwise unleash onto the world. So, um, you know, I think that's the way to think about risk is kind of in terms of specific threat models and specific um, uh, ways of countering them. And I think that is true in general in any type of, uh, in almost any type of risk uh, or, or safety that you're working uh, uh, against, um, rather than just kind of uh, painting with two, I think you're painting with too broad a brush if you just say, uh, think, think about things in terms of quote unquote progress versus quote unquote risk. Right, that's fair. Um, a question I've got from friends is, what is the biggest bottleneck to the progress movement now? As in, like, there would be two parts of it. First would be defining what ends you want. The second part would be defining how do you get there? So how do you answer that? 
yeah, right now I think the biggest bottleneck is probably talent. Um, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of stuff that I think would be great to go do. Um, there's lots of writing that needs to be done. There are, uh, you know, many interesting questions to go investigate. Um, there are just a lot of interesting projects worth doing. I don't think there's a short, much of a shortage of ideas. Um, and there seems to be plenty of funding out there for it. Uh, and so it's just a matter of kind of, I would say talent and also organization, like finding the right people um, to do these things and then, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the management and, and organizational skill to make it happen. Do you have examples of those? Because myself and several listeners would be interested in that. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, just a few things off the top of my head. I think, uh, first off, there's just a ton of intellectual work that needs to be done. There are many books that need to be written um, uh, and, and you know, blogs and podcasts and, um, and, and, uh, and videos and all sorts of things that need to be created. Um, we need much more on the history of progress, on how we came to be where we are, um, much more on um, sort of uh, uh, the frontier of po possibilities and opportunities. We need vivid pictures of, uh, of the future. Um, what could the future look like? What, would it, what kind of future do we want to build? What are the, the opportunities and the possibilities? Um, we need progress-oriented um, uh, proposals for how to solve some of the world's biggest problems. Um, you know, what is the progress-oriented way to address climate change or to, um, or to address uh, air pollution, for instance? Um, or... Um, uh, you know, what is the way to get uh, nuclear technology back on track after it having, you know, stalled out a lot in the last in the last several decades? Um, so uh, how should how should uh, science uh, funding and organization and management be uh, improved and reformed? There's a lot of these questions to do. So we just need, um, you know, really serious um, people who want to do research, writing and speaking and ultimately, um, you know, there's like a whole, there's a whole bookcase full of books that, uh, that need to get written on these topics. Um, and then we also need people popularizing. So um, uh, this stuff should be taught in schools, um, or at least some of it, right? So the, um, in particular, I think the history of technology and industry is like a missing subject out of the school curriculum. Uh, now, I have created a, a high school level progress curriculum that is currently taught through one uh, private high school. Um, but, you know, something like that curriculum should be taught at every high school in the world. Um, and let's throw in, you know, uh, um, uh, the early years of university, uh, just for good measure, right? Um, you know, students should be exposed to this around kind of like high school and, and undergrad years. Um, and so there's a project for, you know, for someone to go do. It's like, let's go get this, get this curriculum developed and taught. Um, uh, as I hinted at earlier, I think there's a lot to be done within arts and entertainment. Um, there are, I, I, it would be great to create, as I said earlier, a, a series of like biopics about great scientists and inventors done right, because there's a lot of these out there, but a lot of them, um, I think, sort of miss the point because they focus on uh, you know, the personal drama or um, uh, they focus on anything other than the actual process of discovery and invention. And you need to get someone who, um, who actually understands the science and the engineering uh, and who also can tell a really good captivating story to a general audience. And that is kind of like a rare intersection of talents and abilities, but you need one person or maybe a pair of people who work really well together, really closely together um, to turn some of the most dramatic stories from, from science and, and invention into, you know, really compelling, um, you know, stories for, for TV and movies. 
Um, those are just a few things off the top of my head. Um, uh, I've written more about this at the Roots of Progress. I wrote an essay recently, a short essay called What Would a Thriving Progress Movement Look Like? And I have several you know, bullet points of ideas there about what needs to be done. I really like that essay. But one of the questions I, uh, one of the questions I, I um, was thinking about was that, uh, you know, scientists and engineers and founders comes at the bottom of that, but shouldn't that be at the, at the top? Shouldn't your primary, uh, because the primary uh, way to improve the world's uh, material condition is to just in the, in the words of Paul Graham, just, just build good stuff. Right. And then, um, shouldn't you be focusing more towards encouraging people to build, uh, you know, deep tech startups than, um, although I could see why you disagree on this, than, uh, fo than focusing on the meta level of encouraging uh, progress? Well, it's not either or, right? Um, uh, in fact, in general, I think the types of people who would do one or the other are probably different types of people. Um, right. So some people have, are, are more inclined to be a writer and a researcher. And, um, you know, and I can point them at good things to go research. Um, other people are more inclined to be scientists or inventors or founders. And like, yeah, they should just go do their thing. Um, I agree that uh, sort of the scientists and the engineers and, and the, the founders are the, the most important um, audience to reach. If I could do a single thing with my work, it would be to inspire those people and give them motivation and courage to go create the future. Um, but uh, to do, I mean, but but to do that, I think we need a um, we we need a thriving progress movement, and so that does involve it does include writing and research and art and entertainment and and education and journalism and and all those different things. Uh, then would I be correct in saying that your theory of change is a very demand side one? You uh, focus on basically um, getting a large percentage of the population interested in, in, in these things, as opposed to things like lobbying governments for lesser re uh, regulations? No. Um, uh, I mean, I do think that regulatory reform is a key piece of all mm -hmm. of this. Um, I also think that regulatory reform tends to happen in a cultural context. Mm -hmm. um, and it happens when the regulators feel that the sort of the time is ripe for it, right? And, and um, like it's much easier, it's not impossible, but it's much easier to do regulatory reform when sort of the tide of culture is, is with you, right? Okay. Um, the environmental laws that were passed in the early 1970s came only after a decade or more of, uh, of you know, cultural buildup of the environmentalist movement uh, behind it, right? So, um, uh, so I'm sort of focused on the, what I believe to be the deepest and longest term um, uh, causes uh, or, or, or context of progress, which is that cultural philosophical context, the ba our basic uh, you know, answer to the question of is progress possible and desirable, right? Do we, do we want more of it and, and can we actually get more of it? Is it a thing we should go pursue? Um, and so that's where I'm focused. But uh, you know, a full progress movement would include things at sort of every level. It would also include include um, uh, people working on policy, such as, for instance, uh, the Institute for Progress, founded by uh, uh, Caleb Watney and Alex Stapp. 
Um, it would include people working in uh, meta-science, which there's a thriving meta-science movement right now of people working on new ways to fund and manage and organize uh, scientific and technological research. I'm very excited about that. Um, uh, it would involve all of these things. Um, the sort of uh, historical and philosophical aspect, the cultural aspect is, is my um, you know, is, is, is my niche. It's, it's what I'm most focused on and maybe what I'm best at. Um, but it's, it's one piece, maybe the most fundamental piece, maybe the foundation, but just one piece of kind of an overall progress movement. A question I've wondered several times about is a lot of people who are, a lot of non-economists, in my opinion, underrate the value of good macroeconomic policy to, to very long-term progress, right? If we didn't have the great depression, we'd probably be around, I don't know, 30% or 40% better off just because of the last time it took. Or we didn't have the great recession, we'd, 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 we'd also be maybe not that much, but a lot better off. Um, wouldn't some percentage, or is it, would I be wrong in saying that some percentage of time in the progress movement should be spent on avoiding the worst effects of bad short-term policy? Maybe. Um, I mean, when you get into, you know, macroeconomic policy, um, you get into an area that obviously is like highly, um, highly contentious and contested. <laughs> um, and you know, there's a lot of arguments sort of back and forth about it. Like, how are you going to, um, what contribution is there to make there and how do you make it? Um, one of the things that led me to the study of progress was, um, you know, getting very, uh, I don't know, getting a little frustrated and disillusioned after decades of, um, kind of thinking and talking to people about politics and political philosophy and finding that it was kind of very hard to change anybody's mind. And, um, ultimately I decided to, uh, to sort of go a level deeper and to say, um, look, what is it that is underlying, um, uh, you know, what is it that underlies kind of my political and philosophical worldview? I, I realized, well, a lot of what motivates me and why I care about, um, things like, um, uh, freedom of thought and speech, um, uh, free markets, reason, science, a lot of why I care about all those things is because I'm keenly aware of uh, the, the progress that we have made in the last couple hundred years and how um, sort of historically anomalous that was, right? How slow progress was for most of human history. And, um, you know, I really want to sort of protect and enhance the, the fundamental things that I think um, caused that progress. And so, you know, I realized both for my own, first and foremost, for my own uh, sort of personal edification, I should go just learn a lot more about where that progress came from and, and, and that story. Um, and second, I realized that it was a, um, you know, an important way for people of um, different political leanings and biases to find common ground. And one thing I love about the progress movement is that we actually have, it actually has attracted um, people from uh, across a political spectrum. Uh, it's it's not politically sort of homogenous or uniform. Um, there's people who are more uh, libertarian. There's people who are more progressive. There's kind of a um, you know a, a, a spectrum there. And uh, what 
what the progress movement does, what the context does, is it sort of gives us this shared value and goal. It says, hey, look, we all basically agree that what we want to do is make human beings better off. Um, we all care about human well-being. We all agree that that human well-being has been greatly enhanced in many ways in the last uh, you know century or two. And we're just looking for ways to kind of keep that going in the most sound and healthy and beneficial way. And um, now we can all now, you know, given that we have a shared value and goal like that, we can now all sort of bring our different political biases to this and kind of argue for the systems that we think work or don't based on um, economics, based on history, uh, based on philosophy, based on whatever, some integration of those things, um, but all sort of... Uh, uh, ranking ourselves by the same scoreboard, right? We're all, uh, you know, we're, we've all essentially agreed to rank our, our ideas and our systems by how much they contribute over the long term to human well-being. Right. No, I, I agree. On that topic, um, how politically neutral should progress studies be? Would you do what uh, Guarding Against Pandemics did and set up a political action committee to to fund certain candidates, you know, if somebody promised to abolish the nuclear uh, re regulatory commission, would it be worthwhile in 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 funding them and getting them to positions of high power? What's your take on that? Um, yeah, I certainly think there is room for political action within the progress movement generally. Um, it's not what I do. Um, it, it like so as I mentioned before, there is a new uh, policy think tank, the Institute mm -hmm. for Progress, um, that is uh, now. I guess even even they, I think, are not doing um, uh, lobbying or you know political action committee type of stuff. I think they're doing you know they're doing more research and, and policy mm -hmm. policy research and education type of stuff. Um, there certainly could be room for some sort of political action. I don't off the top of my head know like what is a valuable. Um, uh, thing to, to be done. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of things you might want to do in politics, but you really have to think carefully about what is tractable, like what is possible in the current context. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something for people who are much more politically clued in than I am. Uh, I'm, I don't follow politics very closely. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and again, it's also something that, uh, you know, not everybody in the pro within the progress movement would agree. So if you came out with, you know, here's my um, political action project, I think you'd probably get a healthy debate uh, within the community of kind of like, is this even a good thing to do? And I think that's fine. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, can, can even be healthy. Um, and I don't mean that for, for that to discourage anybody from doing any kind of a political project they would want to do. Um, you know, just know that you're going to have to argue for it. And you might only get a subset of people on your side. Yeah, that's fair. How morally neutral should be about progress in the U.S. versus a country without the um, the values it has? For example, China, right? Because if you uh, because if you take the 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 idea that uh, it is that that the value systems of geopolitical power matter, you know, uh, I think it would be hard to defend the idea that progress in in all countries would have the same effect for humanity in the very long run. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the big lessons of uh, progress in history and especially in the 20th century is that you know technology is not automatically good, right? Technology at the end of the day is morally neutral. Um, it's, it's about how you use it. And when technology is used within uh, you know, evil social systems, it, uh, it just compounds the evil. Um, I started reading a book recently, I'm only a few chapters in, on um, IBM and the Holocaust. 
about how uh, IBM, now this is before computers, but IBM punch card machines uh, and mechanical uh, you know, card sorters and tabulating machines and so forth helped the Nazi regime to, uh, uh, you know, to run their systems, um, ultimately to run their, uh, their concentration camps and their, um, uh, you know, and their, their racial uh, purity campaign and their, uh, you know, ultimately their, their, their persecution of Jews, especially, um, you know, so, I mean, that is just like a primary example of technology being used for evil purposes. Um, so yeah, we, you do want to make sure that technology doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And I mean, imagine if Hitler had gotten the nuclear bomb, right? Um, uh, but again, you know, how you think about that, I think just like thinking about these sort of moral risks, just like thinking about, um, uh, other types of risks, uh, I think you just want to think carefully about, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of, um, you know, specifically, you know, rather than thinking about that as like a general indictment of progress, um, you know, you think about it specifically in terms of, okay, well, what action might I take or not take, um, or might my country take or not take? Uh, what technology might that put into whose hands? What could it be used for, you know, and so forth? Um, you know, I think if somebody wanted to, if, if a particular company uh, decided to refuse to do business with China on the grounds that, um, you know, if we gave them our technology, it might allow them to continue campaigns of oppression. I mean, I think that would be a very morally um, laudable stance. Um, you've incorporated as a nonprofit a while ago. What um, what was the process like, not uh, legally, but in in terms of deciding that this is going to become a movement? And then how does that and and and, and how do you expect this to change over the very over the long term? Not the very long term. My bad. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the process of deciding to do it was simple. Um, people wanted to give me money and a nonprofit was the best way to receive and manage the funds. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was, I've, I've been um, uh, surprised and uh, very, um, I, if I would quite say overwhelmed, but at times overwhelmed by the, uh, the support that I've been shown. Uh, uh, a lot of people have really been very generous and uh, have stepped forward to uh, support what I'm doing. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled at that. And, uh, you know, creating the nonprofit is just the best way to achieve the goals, um, you know, given the, given the level of support that's out there. Um, 10 years later, would this blog stay the way it is? I, I, I mean, uh, not in terms of volume, obviously, but in terms of general direction or are you planning new things uh, over time? Yeah. Well, the biggest thing I'm doing right now is I'm consolidating the work that I've done so far into a book. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working on a book tentatively titled The Story of Industrial Civilization Towards a New Philosophy of Progress for the 21st Century. And it is going to be essentially the blog that I've written so far, but uh, writ large. It uh, will tell the key stories of uh, the major discoveries and inventions that created the modern world and that gave us our standard of living. And then it will, in the last few chapters, it will uh, interpret that history. It will, it will uh, tell the meaning of progress um, and address questions like, is progress good at the end of the day? Um, can progress continue? And what should we as a society do about it? Um, so I'm very excited for that. It's going to be the, the sort of culmination of all the work that I've done, um, you know, researching uh, technology and so forth. Um, after that, I don't know. I haven't picked the next major goal, but I, I have a hunch that the next thing I will dive into is the history of science. Um, in, in my work so far, I've been focusing on technology and industry, but obviously uh, advances in science underlie a lot of that. 
um, especially uh, electromagnetism, uh, microbiology, and um, uh, and chemistry. Uh, you know, in the in the 19th century, those three uh, you know major areas came forward, and then in the 20th century. Um, uh, physics, including you know, new, sort of nuclear physics, semiconductor physics, um, and, and so forth. Um, so, uh, uh, and obviously, a, a lot more biology and chemistry and, and everything else. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have a hunch that that history of science would be the next thing that I would go into. Uh, and then, you know, very long term, I would really like to do a um, uh, a book or at least a series of research on. Um, the history of progress in morality, society, and government. And that is a, a, a broad topic that I just have kind of a handful of, of ideas for what themes might go under that. Uh, but I think it's really important and, and I think is a third uh, sort of pillar of overall human progress. I think technology, science, and, uh, and morality are kind of these like three pillars um, of, of overall human progress. Right. On the other, on the other hand, uh, ten uh, ten years later, if I still run this podcast, I ask you, you know, and 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 if things didn't didn't go the way you you expected, what do you think would be the major cause of that? Um, you know, it's always hard to know how society is going to receive new ideas, mm-hmm. and um, as a writer if you're going to try to write something that you really want to have a big impact on the world, you really have to write from a place of authenticity and sincerity. You have to just, you have to write kind of according to your own vision and standards, whether or not that is the thing that the world wants to hear or is ready to hear right now. And if they're not ready to hear it, sometimes you just have to wait. And, um, you know, there are many examples of people who, um, you know, whose ideas were not really discovered and uh, uh, whose ideas didn't catch fire in the world until after their death. Sometimes that's the way it happens. Um, But I think that all you can do is put the ideas out there in the best and truest form, make the clearest and most cogent statement of them that you can, and then, um, you know, hope for the best and be proud of what you did no matter what. Yeah, fair. Uh, You've been on a lot of podcasts. What is one question you wish podcast guest, uh, podcast hosts asked you more? Oh, I'm always interested to talk about the, the, uh, the object level details of progress. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and I usually get, I, I get asked all these philosophic questions about like, what is progress and what causes progress <laughs> and what should we do? And da, 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 da. Um, you know, but it's always fun to just sort of dig into the, you know, the actual stories of, of how it came about. That was what fascinated me in the first place. Uh, and, and really a lot of what continues to drive me. Oh uh, yeah. I, I think that's, that's fair, but I think a more, uh, a more a clear ex- explanation is that most of my listeners who do not know about progress studies would not listen to that. So, just, so it's much more easy for me to, to, to ask that because I don't know. But on the, on the other Fair hand, enough. I, I'm happy to cater, cater to your audience. <laughs> no, no. I'll, I'll probably have you on again and then ask you more, more about things like cement and water and sanitation. Great. All right. Uh, actually, I had a few more questions if i was a high schooler and i and i and i was a high schooler last year all right um one serious thing i i would have is besides your uh, 
curriculum how could i diy myself into into learning uh, everything i everything i wanted about this i mean obviously it depends on what i want but given the uh, broad given the broad nature what's the diy curriculum yeah sure i mean you know first just go read a lot um mm-hmm. just pick up books that interest you and um find really good writers and uh, and just you know go just go start learning and just and just kind of like never stop um at the roots of progress uh rootsofprogress.org there is a bibliography it's a little bit out of date um mm-hmm. uh but it's got a bunch of books there that i've read um most of which i thought were um uh, at least reasonably good for people who are very interested in the topic, and some of which I, I kind of recommend, you know, more broadly to anybody who's interested in these this this general subject area. So you can kind of check out those books and my comments on them. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, just you know, you know, you know, we're in an era where it's like it's never been easier to learn something on your own. Um, you have books, uh, you know, available to you, many available in, um, you know, in, in electronic copies, which means you can literally just like look them up and get them instantly. Um, many available almost for free if they're old, uh, you know, out of copyright books. Uh, there is an enormous amount of content in podcasts, on YouTube, in Wikipedia, in uh, on all sorts of other, you know, just like the rest of the internet. There's an enormous amount of stuff out there. Pretty much anything you want to learn, you can go learn. Um, and so uh, I think maybe it's just a matter of, um, one, knowing that you can do that, two, like, uh, having the uh, just the will to do it, and then kind of just having the confidence in yourself that like if you just go out there and start with a Google search on like the most obvious uh, search terms relevant to your topic, that you can like eventually get to something. Um, I mean, a few tips I would say um, uh, as you're reading things, you will uh, you will find yourself confused. Uh, you'll read stuff that you don't understand and you'll be frustrated and you'll feel like, you know, I don't get this. Like um, one thing to do is to just stop and ask yourself like, what, okay, what am I confused about? Like, what questions do I have? What terms, what words uh, or or technical terms were just used in what I read that I don't understand? Or what terms were combined in a way where, you know, I don't know uh, what, you know, what the meaning of that is. Um, And then go look those things up, right? And maybe you'll just, and like, just peel back that, the layers of the onion, like one at a time, um, looking up more and more basic terms and concepts and ideas until you, um, you know, until you get to something that you understand and then sort of build back up from there. Um, uh, in general, you know, kind of like learn to notice confusion and, uh, and, and to address it, like, don't be, um, don't be, uh, comfortable with confusion, get uncomfortable with, uh, with confusion or with less than, you know, perfect uh, clarity about something. Um, but also don't let yourself get bogged down in any one source or topic. Um, if a book is just like super boring, you know, start skimming until you find a part that's like more interesting. Or if the whole book seems boring, just like put it down and pick up a different book. Um, allow yourself to read more than one book at once. Uh, that way, uh, you that that is a, a good way to like not get bogged down and sort of stuck on one book and like, you know, not reading it. Um, those are a couple of things that just sort of like, you know, very uh, briefly come to mind. Um, but really just like, you know, go out there and do it and practice it. It's a skill. Like learning is a skill and you'll get better at it over time. Mm-hmm. I think uh, as I, uh, most of the high schoolers I, uh, I know are actually constrained by time more than anything because, yeah, because, you know, modern uh, processes of, uh, 
of getting into college require you to do so much that that is out of it. So I think the next lobbying movement should be to uh, um, give high schoolers more free time. Really. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. So, I mean, I would even question that, right? Like how much time do you really have to spend polishing that application? How many schools do you really have to apply to? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like how long does that process take? That's maybe a couple months out of your life at most, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even weeks, like, uh, you know, no, and it's, it's done and you, and, you know, and move on. Do something. It's never about the specific college application. It's about the how do how do how do I put it? The uh, zero sum activities that uh, that, oh. that 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 should be put on that should be put on. on yeah, on don't do that. Yeah, no, that's just a mistake. Yeah, don't, I, don't fill agree, up your don't fill up your life and your time with activities that you don't find rewarding because you think somebody else will find them prestigious. Like that's just a fundamental mistake in life. And by the way, if you're making that mistake now and you don't correct it, it's not going to automatically get corrected once mm-hmm. you get to college or get to the job or whatever, right? Like um, there's a, just a fundamental thing where like you should just refuse uh, to put up with bullshit. You should just refuse to, you know, in a certain way, right? Or you should find ways to just like absolutely minimize it when you have to put up with it. Um, but don't devote large amounts of your time uh, or any, any really like significant amounts of your time and effort to things that you don't fundamentally believe in uh, and, and think are valuable and worthwhile and engaging. Life's too short. All right. Uh, on that note, I will stop recording now. <laughs>